Want some tips on how to optimize your VR experience? Then this episode is for you. So let's get to it. You are listening to the How to Create VR podcast, weekly conversations with VR and AR professional creators, designers, and producers. Welcome to another episode of the How to Create VR podcast, where I speak with professional creators, designers, developers, and producers who work on VR, AR, and MR projects. I'm Marcelo Lewin, an immersive content specialist focused on e-learning and training. I'm also the creator and the guy behind HowToCreateVR.com. My guest is Dave Cardwell, a former VFX artist and supervisor of major films. Dave is now working on VR and AR experiences at SpinVR. Today, Dave will share with us some tips and tricks on how to optimize your VR experience to get the best performance out of it. But before we get started, I want to remind you to register at howtocreatevr.com. It's free and registration gives you access to all of our live events, tutorials, practice assets, podcast interviews, videos, and more. Just visit howtocreatevr.com and click on the register for free button. Finally, if you want to attend our live events in virtual reality, join us inside Altspace VR. Just visit howtocreatevr.com forward slash Altspace VR and subscribe to our channel. All right, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Marcelo, how are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. I should actually say welcome back because this is your second time, not on the podcast, but you've done a tutorial with us. Yeah, right. That's right. So before we get started talking about how to optimize VR experiences, maybe you can give us a little background of yourself. How did you get into VR? And you said you worked in major films. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. I'll try to do the abbreviated version because I've been doing this a really, really long time. I started off on way back in the old days working on silicon graphics hardware, same computers that were used to do the original Jurassic Park. There's a guy named Steve Spaz Williams who animated those dinosaurs and things like that. Actually, I had a chance recently at VRTO to share the stage with Steve and just talk about virtual reality. But from working on those computers back then, I sort of got into automotive design and automotive surfacing. I used to be a class A surface modeler for Ford and Mercedes Benz. And then sort of fast forward a bit, I got into film. You know, I just mentioned that I was talking earlier, but, you know, was at Disney for a bit and then spent some time at Weta Digital and was there for the Lord of the Rings films and sort of moving on from there, I got into other VFX studios working on recent television shows such as The Expanse and other shows. And I guess more recently, I got into visualization. I was a imaging manager at Apple in California. So basically, my team would put together any sort of graphics for Tim Cook when he comes on stage and animations or graphics on the products or images you would see in the stores. That was all sort of under my team's responsibility. So while at Apple, actually, we're in a situation where we had to present ideas, concepts to management, and they wanted to have that done in a VR. And there weren't really great solutions to make that easy for the designers to be able to put together those scenes and then demonstrate them. And so that's kind of what brought me back into VR more recently is just some of the needs that we were having in the studio. Now, that's interesting is what do you mean they wanted you to present stuff in VR, like the management were going to wear HMDs? Yeah, that's right. That's so interesting that you say that because Apple really isn't doing much in VR. Obviously, they're a big pusher of AR. But it's interesting that they wanted to see presentations in VR. That's interesting. I'll tell you as much as I can about that story because I 
obviously they have some company secrets, right? right um, of course. <laughs> as you can imagine, just like any sort of consumer products uh, visualization or a consumer products company, they've got industrial designs and those need to be seen in order to be evaluated. They also have interior designs with the Apple stores and things like that, right? And of course, you can imagine that those may need to be evaluated also. And one of the cool things about VR and augmented reality in general is that, you know, you can just save a ton of money, right? Just pre-visualizing, whether it be products or spaces, as opposed to building these out full size just for people to walk by and say, hey, yes or no. So they're a business just like anybody else and businesses are interested in saving costs and AR or VR lets you do that. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Talking about cutting costs, Bell used VR to create their newest helicopter and they cut, I think, the actual manufacturing or design of a new helicopter from like years to like six months plus, you know, all the costs associated with that. So I can see why. Absolutely. I think it's this amazing technology. So for me, it's exciting from a, yes, from an entertainment standpoint, but also really from just being a creator or a designer and being able to visualize things and just a higher fidelity, something that's more true to life and then being able to communicate those designs to other people. So it's an exciting platform. Right. So obviously at Apple, you got into VR just because of the presentation stuff. What made you decide to say, now I want to start creating stuff? Well, so a part of it was the needs that we had at the time. But also, I think, as you may know, I've been involved with creating tools and technology for creatives for years now. I was one of the founders of Mudbox and built that company up and that technology and went on to sell it to Autodesk. What a lot of people don't know, I was heavily involved with the creation of ZBrush before Mudbox as well in terms of defining features and things like that while we were at Weta Digital. So we later received an Academy Award for that work on Mudbox. So it's sort of my thing, I guess. You know, I'm interested in helping creatives access technology, use technology, and removing barriers to entry to that technology. So that's with where VR was, it was kind of like, you know, as a designer, somebody who spent your whole life learning about color and design, shape, proportions, anatomy, what have you. Now you've got to all of a sudden write C-sharp code to put a picture on the screen. And I just find that's ridiculous. So that also excites me as an opportunity there to be able to solve those problems for creatives. So that's what, you know, the needs that we were seeing in the studio and then also me wanting to make tools accessible for creatives is sort of what really got me off my seat, so to speak, and start being proactive and trying to create solutions for everyone. So we'll go ahead and jump in and start talking about optimizing VR experiences. So why don't we start with, you know, I mean, there are optimization tips for software, hardware, even 3D art, right? So why don't we start with software tips? What do you recommend? And now, of course, we can divide that into even coding optimization and even scene optimization. So let's just start with some tips on software that you feel would help optimize our experiences. Yeah, sure. I think when you're creating these experiences, of course, for VR, sort of the name of the game, if you will, is, is speed. You know, you want a high frames per second. So in order to get that, you've got to optimize the art assets usually are the biggest contributor to performance. It's how many objects you have, how you optimize your textures, how you handle like transparencies and things like that. Those are usually the biggest performance hits, right? In terms of software processes, I mean, you can use any sort of 3D application, whether it be Max or Maya or Cinema 4D, whatever. It just all comes down to poly counts, having power of two textures, reducing the number of draw calls and 
you know, draw calls or something, really this sort of simple way to put that is like, you know, if the objects are static, just combine them, you know, basically try to get as, as few objects in the scene as possible. The poly counts nowadays are sort of less of an issue, but depending on what's your target, you know, you need to think about if you're going to be exporting for mobile phones or if you're exporting for a PC and sort of taking in consideration, not everybody has the newest RTX 2080 or something like that. So you've got to take into account where you're trying to go with this experience and spend a lot of time on the art side and optimizing things. That's the biggest thing you can do to create a nice, smooth experience for your audience, really. What about talking about dynamic lighting? Some people People talk about baking in the lighting. Can you explain a little bit more about that? And also, you mentioned about drawing calls. Maybe you can expand a little more exactly for those that aren't very familiar with that. Yeah. So basically, the whole issue about draw calls, I mean, you got to think about how the render pipeline works, like what's actually happening here on your computer or your audience's computer to actually draw the scene and draw it at a very high frame rate. You know, you got to redraw the scene at 90 frames per second. So what happens is with a draw call, essentially, it's kind of a set of instructions that get sent. Actually, it's from the CPU, really, then get sent to the GPU. And that's why having a faster GPU kind of it helps to have a speedier experience or a smoother experience. But on the art side, you can sort of reduce the number of draw calls simply by one of the easiest ways is just combining things. Right. I'll just speak to one of our projects that we've got on Steam right now, you know, test subject 901, for example. And we released that game, I think, back in September. And even last week, we released an update, I think, to I think it was last week or the week before, but where we optimize it even further. And a lot of the optimization had to do with just combining things so that there aren't as many objects. Because for each object, the computer has to basically read through a set of instructions and send through a set of instructions to the GPU. You can think of it that way. And so the more objects, the more instructions, the more instructions, the slower things are. So this is kind of like the biggest problem is just like the number of objects and that's usually the biggest problem. It's not usually poly counts all the time. You know, everybody sort of has gotten better at their high poly to low poly game, which is like, you know, just sort of making a high poly object and then tracing that, creating a low poly object and then using a tool like Substance Designer, Substance Painter to bake the maps or, you know, Marmoset to bake the maps to capture the look of the high poly model and then transfer that within a map to the low poly model. So that gets your polygon counts down. And so that's really important. But the object count is really, really important because it helps like reduce the number of draw calls. And so this is one of the, you know, it's just going around being smart about your scene. Like in the game, Test Subject 901, we've got lots of opening doors and stuff like that. But really most of the level, like the lab and pipes and the architecture of the scene, it's all static, you know, and you can combine a lot of that stuff. So for example, let's say you have a crowd you're talking about instead of having a hundred different objects, maybe having 10 and then somehow duplicating those objects via code and then dynamically changing maybe some of the mapping without really having those extra objects so that way you can streamline that process better the draw calls yeah you could crowds you know that may or may not be a problem if they're like all the same objects there's other sort of optimizations that happen through the hardware such as like camera fresh from calling and what that is is just like hey if you don't see this thing in the camera then cut this thing off right so there are optimizations that the game engine that you're using will employ 
to help you optimize things. So in the case of a crowd in certain circumstances, it won't be that much of a problem. But where it is a problem is like, let's say you've got some sort of a sci-fi scene and uh, some sort of a hangar bay and you've got all these crates and then pipes and lights and railings and stairs and little buttons that are on some sort of control box to open a door or something like that. These start adding up to like thousands and thousands of objects. <laughs> so you've got to combine a lot of these things on the art side in the geometry and then if you can even combine some of them in the larger texture sheets. So like, just for example, you could have a door and a wall on the same texture sheet, for example. So now you've got, you're reducing the number of texture reads. So you just think about ways to combine things, giving the CPU and the GPU as few operations as possible, right? The less it has to think about, the faster the scene and the more fun and experience the player will have, right? What about lighting? So as far as lighting goes, yeah, this is some of the thing that's sort of over the past whatever a number of years it's been an issue the way we solve it basically is baking everything and what that means is for your geometry you've got to have uvs for everything and you can have multiple uv what they call uv channels let's say for example if you can imagine like a crate you know you can have that crate unwrapped in 2d space so that you can paint on it and then if you had a hundred of those crates or something you could create a second uv channel and then lay out all 100 of those crates so that none of their UVs are overlapping. And this allows you to have, let's say, unique lighting that goes across all 100 of those objects. And these days, you can do the baking within Engine. You can bake it within Unity. You can bake it within Unreal Engine. You can also bake it in all of the major renderers out there today. You know, so those are actually better renders in many times, better renderers in terms of like global illumination, that sort of thing. So whether it be V-Ray, Redshift, one of the things I like to do these days is, you know, bake maps and redshift or octane sometimes so there's a number of ways you can bake the actual lighting maps and then have those applied to the scene and again the name of the game there what you're trying to do is just reduce the number of times that the gpu has to receive new instructions or whatever per frame Uh, so if it's baked it's like it receives it once and it's like it's all good if there's a situation where your character needs to have dynamic lights like he's casting shadows something you just want to be very sparing with there are other more sophisticated ways to handle dynamic lights these days but still for vr purposes and being most efficient on most people's computers that are around today you know you want to be efficient on the gpu right so baking is still your best solution i've got one of the new rtx 2080s in my home computer but not everybody has those explain from a user perspective from an end user perspective how is the experience affected when you bake the lighting versus dynamic lighting Yeah, so what you'll experience is just sluggishness and the end user may not really, most of the time he won't be able to articulate and like cut you any slack and say like, oh, they're just having frame rate issues because they didn't reduce draw calls. What happens is it sort of impacts them on a subconscious or conscious level, which is I'm feeling sick or nauseous, right? (laughs) Because there's lag, right? So when I'm turning my head, my body or the fluid in my inner ear knew that I turned my head like a split second before. And then there's like a delay between what I'm seeing. And so then what happens is your body says, hey, I'm being poor poisoned. This is what's happening physiologically. I'm being poisoned, so let's make myself nauseous so I can get rid of that poison. That's what actually happens. <laughs> so right, right. You want to create a most pleasant experience for the end user, right? Like So the more optimized your scene is, the smoother the experience is going to be for them. They're going to experience higher frame rates and be able to experience your game or whatever it is you're putting together, visualization or whatever, in a much more fluid way. 
but from a quality experience of the VR game itself, I'm talking about the actual graphics, is there a difference between baking in the lighting and making it dynamic? Looks-wise, there can be. The reason why I hesitated, so if you have dynamic lighting, you know, so let's say that there's a swinging lamp in the ceiling, that's something that you'd want to use a dynamic light for because then it would be able to dynamically cast shadows from objects in the scene, that sort of thing. You know, if you look at most, take any film or something like that, most of the time the lights are just there, right? The story point is not really about the lights moving around. Even if you're in your room right now, most light is just there. It's it's on and it is the way it is and you don't need to adjust it, right? And so in terms of optimizing things, it's just better to bake and there won't be much of a visual difference. Right. So the key is if the lighting actually moves, then baking it, obviously it's a hard thing to do. That's right. It's not impossible. In theory, you could make a movie file and play that back on a texture or something like that, but... (laughs) Yeah, right. It's more work than it's worth it. Yeah. It's way more work than it's worth and that's why the industry has gone towards baking. You know, there's been some new developments with the GPUs and NVIDIA cards and the promise of real-time path tracing, which is where you don't need to bake. And there's a sort of actual ray tracing going on that calculates all the shadows and softness and reflections and everything. And that's great. Sitting here probably three and a half years from now or four years from now, everyone will have those GPUs and maybe you won't have to bake that much anymore. Right. They'll be built into the uh, mobile devices. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of mobile devices, what kind of tips or how different is it to, let's say, design an experience for like an Oculus Go or even, you know, upcoming Oculus Quest versus a desktop HMD that has access to an RTX or GTX GPU? Yeah, that's really critical. You know, the first thing you've got to do when you're creating one of these experiences is sort of deciding up front, like where you're going with it. And if you think you're going to be going towards a mobile phone, you really, really have to optimize everything. You have to optimize texture sizes, the amount of polygons, reducing the number of objects. It's just a slower computer, right? It's still the same in terms of they're both computers, the mobile phone and the regular desktop, but it's just a slower one. And not everyone has the latest iPhone, whatever it is right now, XS or whatever, Pixel 3s. People don't have those phones en masse. As a creator, you're trying to maximize the reach of whatever it is you're doing. You need to sort of think about what's the slowest kind of phone that is going to be running your experience and then start your art optimization from that perspective. Going sort of one step lower than real-time 3D VR, you know, you can, of course, do 360 video, right? So 360 video and Marcel, you've been around when QuickTime VR used to be a thing. I was around at that time and it's really kind of the similar thing, except for now you can put a headset on or you can rotate your phone around and use the gyros in the phone to see this video. It doesn't look as good, but that's also an option and it gives you the most reach. You know, we created an experience for the Expanse television show. This is a couple of years ago. And originally they wanted to have a real time Unreal Engine game experience. And sort of halfway through the project, they got back to us and concerned about the number of users that would have hardware capable to play this thing. So at that time, they decided, hey, can we have a 360 video instead that we can post on YouTube? (laughs) So we ended up rendering out the whole entire experience 
still in Unreal Engine and generated a 360 video that we exported. It was more optimized and therefore it was able to reach hundreds of thousands of more people. So if you're thinking about going mobile, you've got to think about, you know, a lot of people still hold on to grandma's phone, right? Like for some people, it's like a badge of distinction if they sort of like to hold on to see how long they can hold on to tech, right? <laughs> right, right. I actually have some of the developers on my team. They're the actual VR developers. They've still got iPhone 5s and stuff, you know? So oh, wow. you've got to consider that, right? Right. But can you optimize an experience so it actually runs well on a mobile device, let's say a phone or even a standalone, right? But also then if you are using it with a desktop HMD, then you can sort of bring up, let's say, higher poly count objects versus lower poly count objects. We released a build of our game the other day that has to have some settings that you can toggle through. But most of the time, we don't put in geometry and textures for every single platform, right? We like to sort of author it once. And yes, there are some sliders that we can say, hey, use the lowest quality textures and stuff, but it's limited. You have to sort of think ahead as to what your target is and say, okay, I'm only servicing these particular customers. And that's it. Now, you guys have the tool Brio VR. That was a tutorial we did with you guys, which generates ultimately web VR, right? That's right. So with that, are there any optimization tips specifically to web VR or does it really fall under the same thing as doing native with Unity and Unreal? It's the same things, really. You have to think about if you're going to be doing something for a desktop experience. So with Brio, the optimization or the path for optimization is really the same as what you would take with Unreal or Unity. You have to sort of decide if I'm creating experience for a mobile phone or if I'm creating experience for a visualization, let's say for in a, within a design department, or if I'm an architectural visualization house and I want to create an experience, is my target viewer going to be on a PC? What type of PC will they likely have? But, you know, in terms of WebGL and its limitations, there are not many limitations in, as in terms of VR goes, where the limitations would come in with WebGL is like there aren't as many tricks to do real-time displacements, actual triangular displacements or real-time screen space reflections. Or currently we're talking about the NVIDIA GPUs, like it doesn't take advantage of the real-time ray tracing features on the new RTX cards, for example, right now. There are some limitations in terms of multi-threading that could impact your experience. But for the most part, most of the things that we see in VR experiences today, well, there are no limitations anymore. And that's the exciting thing about that technology platform is that, you know, you can author once and with a link, you can send a link to people with their mobile phones or to desktops and they can have a good experience on both of those platforms. What about any programming tips? So if you're doing any actual code, now I'm not sure if you actually do code yourself or not. Most of the development these days is done by our development team, my developers. Yeah, I understand code. I write scripts and things like that. But most of the coding these days is, is I have people that are working on a team full time doing that. And they're really good at it. They're much better than I am. It's the same thing as you could have really intense scripts. You know, if you're developing in Unity, it's the same thing with code as it is with geometry. It's optimizing less scripts, you know, scripts that aren't as long, aren't as complex. The less instructions you give the computer, the faster it's going to be for the end user, right? So in terms of any more detail than that, I would have to get one of my devs on to come on the podcast and share that with you right, guys. Right, right. <laughs> Maybe we'll get one of your devs to come on one day and we'll just do a very hardcore one. Oh, we've got some great ones. So yeah, it'd be a great thing to do is going through a coding tips on Unreal Unity. Yeah, that'd be great. Actually, I'll take you up on that, but not as a podcast. I'll take you up on that as a tutorial. 
Absolutely. Sure. I've got you recorded so you guys can back out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> sure. So let's talk about some tools to measure optimization, right? So you gave tips on what to optimize, but how do you measure optimization? What kind of tools are out there to be able to do that? So depending on the engine you're using. So if you're using our tool in Brio, we have a simple life meter, if you will, that we it's kind of like a street fighter health bar. It's like as you drag stuff in there, it just gets more and more intense. But if you're building something on Unity or Unreal, each of those have their own sort of profiling tools and you're going to want to be familiar with those you know unreals are very friendly where actually both of them are quite friendly where they give you just diagnostics about everything that every instruction that's kind of getting sent over to the gpu they've got really nice sort of color-coded screen-based feedback for where things are being hot or you know which objects are kind of the real culprits for performance and you're going to want to, depending on which platform you use, you're just going to want to read through the instructions. People don't like to do that, but the instruction manual for both of those optimization tools on both Unity and Unreal are quite detailed. And they're pretty clear in terms of what sort of things they're telling you about and how to optimize your scene based on what you're seeing there. Yeah, and both Oculus and HTC have their own optimization guides as well that affect both Unity and Unreal. Yeah, there are optimization guides there. There are other notes online for various devices, Daydream or even other mobile platforms. That's one of the great things about computer graphics nowadays versus like when I started, there was no internet. <laughs> you know, you had these things called books and you had to actually read books. <laughs> Or I remember going to SIGGRAPH and it, the name of the game back then was like, see if you can score some of the old VHS tapes that would have tutorials on them and stuff. You know, so <laughs> it's so much easier now to get information about how to do really everything. Yeah, definitely. Now, what about AR? I mean, are there any tips for that? Are you guys doing any AR stuff? Most of the AR work we're doing is through our own platform, Brio. Then we're trying to provide tools. Right now, our AR tool set is in beta for Brio, but it's there. And in terms of how you build differently for that, you just have to think about with AR, you're dealing with graphics that are superimposed on top of reality. So it's like you may not want to include the walls and the floors and things like that in your model. You want to think about your model kind of standalone in the environment. There are creative differences. You want to think about scale becomes really important in AR. You know, if you've got a character that you're going to be placing in the scene, you need to make sure you build that in a scale that's relative to reality, like how people are going to see this object, right? Another thing that has come up in some of the experiences that we've been building are like, okay, do we expect people to throw this out and place it on the floor or do we expect them to throw this out and place it on the table in front of them? Right. Because that affects the animation that you're going to do or, again, the scale. If it's going to be on the floor, if it's a small object, you may want to have that object scale up during the animation just so people can see it. Right. Versus if it's going to be something that's on someone's desktop or like something that pops up in a book or on a business card or something like that, you may consider that they're going to be either holding this in their hand or having that on the table. So it's more of a thinking about it creatively in a different way rather than any sort of particular optimizations or anything like that. The AR experiences right now are primarily done on phones, even though it was exciting. Just I think it was Sunday where the HoloLens 2 was announced and I have a friend of mine who's actually working on the HoloLens team. So it was interesting hearing about how that launch was. And that's a device that is available or going to be available for people to host their AR experiences on. But that will require some different development practices. But for the most part, 
it's more of a creative difference with AR than over VR. Yeah, I actually watched the announcement live from Barcelona on YouTube. It was very interesting what they came out with on the second version of the HoloLens. But that's actually for a total different podcast that we can go into. So, well, Dave, we're almost here at the end of the interview. I do want to ask you what your take is on VR in the future. What would you like VR to be like in the future if you had control over it? I think that VR is going to have their use cases. You know, there have been some interesting developments recently in terms of VR headsets that have human eye resolution. But I would expect that for augmented reality devices as well, they're going to have the similar sort of resolution is going to come into play. In the end, in the future, I think that AR will win. And the reason why is because let's say I have an AR device that has human eye resolution to it. I can decide to cover the full screen with graphics if I want to. And so at that point, okay, what's the difference between VR, right? (laughs) So if I want to completely put you in a room or take you somewhere else, I just cover the entire view with graphics. So in the end, to me, augmented reality is going to work. Also, things that people don't think about with augmented reality is the sort of mixed reality nature of it, where the headset itself can understand what it's seeing and give you feedback about what it's seeing and allow you give you data about what it's seeing. You could build a social network on the thing. You could have instructions explain to you how to repair something. The device can keep track of where you may have misplaced physical objects earlier in the day and replay that back for you. So there's a whole bunch of other things that augmented reality brings that are not just like placing graphics on the screen but have more to do with artificial intelligence operating on and looking at the scene, observing what's going on and presenting data relative to what's going on in real time, right? So this is why I think that augmented reality will sort of take over VR for a lot of what we see, but VR will still have some applications in certain markets. The playing back of my memories, I guess, from where I left my keys and stuff, that's very Black Mirror-like. In fact, I think there was an episode on that. Yeah, there was. Yeah, Yeah, a very good episode that I hope never comes true. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think it will. I mean, for a lot of it, right? I agree, yeah. Because the benefits outweigh the potential gifts, and that's always the thing with technology. But that means that my wife is going to win 100% of the time every time. (laughs) All right, Dave. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time sharing all the information with us. I want to bring you back later on when eye tracking and foveated rendering comes out because I think that's going to introduce some other things that we can do from an optimization perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think eye tracking is a huge component and it looks like the HoloLens 2 is is going to be an improvement there from what I've read. And it's something that we're looking to supporting with our platform, Brio VR. And, you know, please stop by to check it out and be able to put together some scenes and get going in VR really quickly. So I encourage everybody to stop by and check that out at BrioVR.com. Yeah, and they'll be able to also check out the tutorial. Well, Dave, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate the time and the opportunity, Marcel. And thanks again to the rest of you for being here with us. Just a quick reminder, if you want to access all of our live events, tutorials, practice assets, podcast interviews, videos, and more, register for free at howtocreatevr.com. If you want to attend our live events in virtual reality, join us inside Altspace VR. Just visit howtocreatevr.com forward slash Altspace VR and subscribe to our channel. So until the next episode, I'm Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everyone. Cheers.